Hello, and welcome back. For today's podcast, we're joined by David Parr, who's based in Malawi and has been working on sustainable agriculture fisheries to bolster economic development among the nation's poorest to build a more prosperous future. Today's going into some of the details of the project, the background of the country, and the obstacles people are facing, and much more. If you like this episode and like to follow more on this project, please follow the links in the description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoralplant.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, and welcome back to Restoral Plant Podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. For episode 28, I'm joined by Dave Barr. This is his second time. And he's been telling us a little bit about aquaculture and the things that he's been getting up to over the past year and and more. So Dave, so welcome. Uh, it's nice to have you. So tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, uh, just to kick things off. Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me back on. I can't believe it's been a year. Um, what's, what's happened? It seems crazy how fast the time has gone, but crazy world. Um, so uh, last time I was on, we had a good chat, um, a well-rounded chat about aquaculture in general, um, a little bit about my past and things that I was hopefully going to be getting involved with. So I can tell you a little bit more about that, everything that's happened in the last year. Um, so for those who haven't seen last time, <laughs> um, my name's David Budge. I'm an aquaculturist, which means I am a specialist in farming um, aquatic organisms, plants and animals. Um, predominantly, and for the focus of my time now, it's the farming of tilapia, um, which are sometimes called bream, in freshwater systems in Malawi, which is in southern Africa, um, surrounded by Zambia, Mozambique, and Tanzania. Um, and since we last spoke, I've been here um, on a project called Aquaculture Value Chain Development. It's a BMZ, that's German government funded, GIZ, German Development Cooperation um, implemented project um, in partnership with some consultancies and NGOs. So I'm um, leading the team from the consultancies and the NGOs, um, which, has been, which has been fantastic. And we are working with smallholder farmers in particular. So that is farmers who maybe have land sizes of well, pond sizes of between 200 meters squared, so 20 by 10 maybe, all the way up to a total pond area of over five hectares. So that's you know, 10 rugby pitches kind of thing. Um, and so the project has worked with four and a half thousand farmers directly in terms of 90% practical training like on the farm side. And then that's been followed up with a series of um, coaching loops, which is where um, the extensionists go and spend more time with farmers, but it's more of a farmer led discussion around solving their own issues. So there's the support from the trained extensionist, but the farmers meant to come up with more of the solutions themselves based on the training that they went to before. Um, and lots of other different activities in the mix as well. Um, but it's been it's been great. And uh, the project is coming to an, well, our part of the project is coming to an end in January. Um, and GIZ, that's the German 
cooperation. They'll be carrying on for another year and a half, I think. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of up in the present day where we are now. So I'm sitting in sunny Lilongwe, the capital city of Malawi. Um, yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit about your day to day. Day to day. So it varies. So. As part of the project, we have three regional teams. So the country is split into three regions, the north, central, and south. Um, so up until the end of last year, there were three distinct offices under the consultancy. As of now, so I'm going into a bit of specifics. Um, each of the offices for central and south has um, a coordinator and an extensionist, and then a partnering NGO who go out and do the, the work with farmers and uh, you know, collecting data so that we can um, present evidence for the German government and the Malawian government on, on different technologies that we've been introducing and stuff. And so for me, a part of my time is, is trying to keep up with everything that's going on and everything that people are doing out in rural areas or, or in peri-urban areas sometimes with farmers. Um, also a part of my time is spent working with the GIZ to the German team. Um, they have lots of different components and activities that we're not really involved with, but they sometimes need some technical input, some kind of guidance from the view of like oversight of things that are going on with all of the farmers in the project. So um, they need they need numbers, they need ideas, they need strategy. So there's parts of that. Um, and I do try to get out of the office and spend time actually with farmers as often as possible. Um, but not as much as I'd like, probably a week a month, maybe. Of course. But, um, my day-to-day, day-to-day it's, it's relatively relatively similar to what you'd expect in in another country in terms of my office life um but it's outside outside of outside of uh, the office is where things change i guess yeah <laughs> yes that's a good place to start so tell me a little bit about what was the situation of these farmers before the project took place were they sort of very much kind of local uh subsistence and and then what has been, what will be the goal? I think you said it's a four-year project. What will then be the kind of hopeful the end point in our project is finished in a few years or, or more? Sure. So the project itself had you know, target outputs against different indicators. So as you normally have in, like a pro- in, in, in any project, you have a, like a logical framework where you see the change over time based on different activities that are going to bring about different outputs and different outcomes. And, um, so the, main, the core aim of the project was to produce, to make more fish be produced, to help farmers to produce more fish so that it would be available for themselves and for rural poor consumers. So people who are food insecure generally. Now in Malawi, that's almost everyone has some level of food insecurity, whether it's very extreme or moderate. But even moderate, is, it's, it's alarm bells in almost every context. It's, it's not a good thing at all. So 
on the one hand, it's trying to you know, create more fish. On the other, it's trying to create more jobs. But then in order to do those things, you need to be able to do targeted interventions in parts of the value chain that enable that to happen. So um, like if you look at crop farming, in order to produce lots of maize or corn, you need seed multipliers, you need high quality seed to be to grow fast and combined with fertilizers and all of these other things that all of the other labor that you would put into it. And agriculture is exactly the same thing. So you need good quality seed, that's the baby fish that you start with, and they have to come from somewhere. So that was one of the things that the project started off with was identifying, well, at that time, it was about 30 um, small-scale hatchery operators. So these are people who um, basically produce baby fish for other farmers at a cost. Um, but that is the very beginning of, of the production um, increase. You need to get farmers trained on how to breed fish in order to make a baby fish that has better growth potential and then try to build these people's confidence so that they can go out and market this product and in a way also become extensionists over the course of time. So from 2019 where kind of activities on the ground started to really kind of accelerate through to now at the end of 2022, we have now 37 hatchery operators producing, oh, let me get this number right. I think it's, it's between one and a half and two million fingerlings. So these are baby fish for, for, for the open market for other farmers. And they're selling to either individually owned farms, group, groups of farmers who co-manage or, um, or uh, share ponds. Um, and, uh, and also selling to, to governments as well and other NGOs who, who will be doing work in that space. Um, also importantly, feed. Feed, obviously, you need to feed the fish on something. So either you're trying to maximize um, primary productivity in the pond, so creating zooplankton, phytoplankton, baby, like tiny, tiny plants and animals that, that these baby fish can be eating and then adult fish also can be eating as well. Um, and also trying to stimulate business flow for commercially produced formulated feeds, like picture chicken feeds, but um, chicken feeds or other livestock feeds, but in a smaller rounded pellets rather than being in a kind of uh, rectangular pellets, I guess, or an oval pellet. Um, and this, this is what you would provide to the fish if you want to guarantee kind of maximum growth. Um, but when the project started, all of this was kind of smoke and mirrors, in a sense. There, were, there was evidence that some of this was going on, but nothing, nothing was in a good, good condition at all. Um, there wasn't any domestic production of feed that was only imported. Um, now, 2022, we're on the cusp of having five local producers We've got a list of over 120 known hatcheries who have been involved in the project somehow. Um, overall productivity, farmer to farmer, is got, has gone up by at least 100%. Um, so they're producing double what they were producing before. And 
certain innovations in the project are exciting and gaining a bit of attraction internationally as well because of their relevance for particularly Southeast Africa, but possibly also other regions. So ways of doing intermittent harvesting using traps, um, which I, it's something that's been done for millennia in fisheries using fish traps. But when you're working with a mixed sex system where you've got males and females and they're breeding, you need to be removing fish, otherwise you get stunting in the first cohort. Um, and it's, it's, it's an innovation that's making people money and it's giving people more fish and it's fish that people need. It's kind of fish of this size is being harvested on up to a daily basis or you know, every couple of days. And that's it's making a huge difference to you know, 10,000 farmers, essentially, who have been reached um, through one way or another. So it's, it's great, it's, it's, it's a privilege to witness the change on that scale, I would say. Um, but there's a lot more potential for more, I would say. Malawi is, of course, a sub-Saharan African country yes. Um, yes. with a very complex history. And yes. you mentioned, of course, that majority of the population uh, is in a position of, is vulnerable to, to food insecurity. Um, yeah. And I was wondering, is that just geographical? Is it because of corruption, poor infrastructure? Is it, are there still kind of senses of, you know, latent imperialism in there? Um, I was wondering if you could kind of go into those sort of three areas a little bit. And, sure. but, but I'm probably right in saying that's probably a bit of a combination of, uh, of all the other. Yeah. But if you just go into those I mean, areas a little bit. Uh, sure. So that's kind of geographical. Yeah. And then kind of geopolitical and social and stuff. And then, yeah, I mean, I think the tragedy for a lot of landlocked countries is that they need to have something that's worth exporting beyond their borders. Otherwise, they're always going to be caught in a trap of having to pay a lot to get everything that anyone else can get a lot easier because of trade routes. Malawi is in a difficult space because, yes, it's landlocked, and yes, it's landlocked by countries that are predominantly Mozambique. Itself has a very challenging regulatory and legal framework for doing business. So it means it is difficult to get things in and out of Malawi, and it's very expensive. And the government needs to charge a huge amount to get things in and out because it it needs the forex. Um, I think, so yes, it doesn't outcompete a lot of its neighbors on much, and it doesn't have great reserves of minerals like some of its neighbors. I mean, you're looking at Mozambique, one of the largest natural gas reserves in the world, discovered in the last 10 years. Um, uh, Zambia, huge deposits of copper, um, along with other key minerals, Barbary as well, South Africa, Botswana, of course. Um, so that, that's that. It relies a lot on things like tobacco, tea, coffee, pigeon peas, cow peas, um, none of which are of significantly high quality to command a price premium compared with their neighbors. So that's a challenge. 
also, very, very importantly, I think, ironically, actually, I, I was reading, I was reading through a, um, uh, it was a government document this morning. It's about, uh, it's about migration policy, which is completely unrelated. But um, it was making a point, the, the author was making a point that the country has actually moved backwards since the end of um, one-party rule. So for Malawi, it gained independence in 1966. It then gained democracy in 1994, I believe. 1994, I think it was 94, just before South Africa. And the first president was Hastings Banda. He basically gave himself a presidency for life. He set up, like a lot of Africa's big men, strong men, those first leaders who um, faced a range of different challenges and created challenges for themselves, he, he created quite a lot of stability and he prioritized education, prioritized developing healthcare, developing administrative processes. And yes, people, people were poor and there wasn't a huge amount of opportunity for moving up. But people's basic needs were met. What's happened since then is not a move towards democracy, but a, what appears to be a move towards my turn. You know, leaders who say, my turn now. So it's just smash and grab and corruption after corruption after corruption. And small steps are made towards progress, of course. But... Um, for every one step forward, there's a couple of steps back in other areas, and it's yeah, it's frustrating. So I think it's it's caught in a very difficult place, and I, my, I don't I don't envy the current president at all or any of the politicians because it's it's a challenging one um, because uh, they have the lake, which is a huge resource, but I, but being able to harness it in the right way is a challenge. Is it being exploited from outside in any sort of grand way for minerals or resources? No, no nothing no. like that. No. So there was, uh, there's been there's been some prospecting around the country, and they they did look into the possibility of deep of deep mining. So under the lake, they believe that there's oil. The problem is. They don't know the structure of the oil reserves under the lake, and there's a danger that um, there's a danger that they could rip well, not only cause a huge oil spill, which would be a disaster, but they could also create a crack or something for the water to seep down below. <clears throat> that was one of the concerns. So I don't know. They were talking about maybe trying to do it under, um, if the lake is here, trying to do it under from the side. But it's just a disastrous idea. I I, I don't think. That it will happen, um, at least not in the short term. So it's a tricky one. They're in a difficult position, and they don't—they don't have the benefit of being a focus of. Like, I'm not going to try and promote imperialism in the slightest. I think there's lots of bad things about it. But some of the other countries in this part of the world benefited to a certain degree from more advanced systems and structures under colonial rule. Malawi didn't. It was always a bit of a Outlier. side. 
it's always been an outlier. So it's in a it's a it's a challenge. It's in a challenging challenging space. Certainly. You've mentioned a number of really interesting things there, um, especially given the fact that Malawi's landlocked and the trade economic obstacles that brings about. You've just mentioned colonialism there. What relationship does Malawi have with the countries around it, and is it? A relatively stable country are there kind of brewing you know ethnic conflicts or anything like that what's the kind of general setup in in those senses so very okay i would say the general the general relationship on like a business level isn't negative um it's not it's not overly negative i would say it kind of malawi gets by in its relationship with its neighbors um, there's certainly, there's a large Malawian diaspora around Southern Africa and they're not necessarily liked. I mean, xenophobia in South Africa is a big issue generally, but some of those people are Malawian. Um, so that's a problem for them. Um, but generally within Malawi, although social tension and demonstrations. I would never go as far as saying riots. They're always called demonstrations. But ironically, there was actually a very big demonstration today calling for the president to, to, to stand down, which isn't going to happen. But it's, it, a lot of it is because of a, a lack of openness to what is going on in the world. Like people, pe people here are very hung up on price rise, inflation, well, inflation and devaluation of the currency. And it's difficult to buy fuel. Fuel is very expensive. Oil is very expensive. Like cooking oil is very expensive. Like basic commodities are very expensive. It's getting harder and harder and harder. But people just think that that's a result of, of, of politicians. And of course it's not. Like bringing another politician and the same thing will be there tomorrow. Um, it's nothing to do with the politicians, it's global issues and neighbouring issues, but um, unfortunately that's overlooked. But the, certainly the general theme is that Malawians are incredibly friendly, calm, kind people, um, and violence is not common at all. Any kind of civil unrest with violence is very unusual, very, very, very unusual. But there, there hasn't been a war, for example. Like there hasn't been any prolonged fighting. No, like, yeah, on record, there hasn't been any prolonged fighting in Malawi ever. So you're working, which is very unusual. Very unusual, right? <laughs> sure. Um, so just going back a little bit to your work in agriculture, uh, yeah. how widespread are these kinds of projects? Is it, is it, is this, is this very much a you know the first of its kind in Malawi, or are the, is this a phenomenon of projects going on around sure. sub-Saharan Africa in sure. general? And and also, what wider influences are having? You've mentioned about you know it's having great development. Uh, yeah. prospects for economics and local farmers and things what does it look like on a slightly larger scale so i, I mean i would call it an industry development um, aquaculture specifically is gaining traction it's gaining more interest because 
Um, a lot of donors, and there are a lot, and there are big machines of people working under or behind them, however you want to look at it. Um, they are looking at aquaculture as a nice um, integrated solution to people's challenges um, where there's water boxes and it can be you know, combined with, with other sectors and other industries quite easily. Um, in Malawi right now, there are probably four, four projects involving aquaculture that I know of. Um, and over the course of the last four years, there's been maybe another three or four on top of that. So on a, on a five-year basis, you like I would say in Malawi, there would be at least one for each of those five years, at least. Uh, and the, these would vary in their size in terms of their their value as projects between maybe a hundred thousand dollars and ten to fifteen million dollars. Right, fantastic. That's encouraging. Um, and these kind of projects, these kind of projects are going on all over the place. I mean, so this this project that I'm working on in Malawi, ABCP Agriculture Value Chain in Malawi, is one of seven projects as a global program by by a, it's a special initiative under the German government that they're doing in seven countries, each either fisheries or aquaculture. So that's. Mauritania, Uganda, Madagascar, Zambia, Malawi, India, and Cambodia. All right. So you've been out there for five years or enough? Is that correct? Almost seven. Almost seven, blimey. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what it's been like for you as a, you know, a British man and out there for that long, some of the interactions you've had, the cultural differences, how people have interacted with you, what it's like out, what, sorry, what, is it like out there in, in those regards? I mean, I would generally, generally, I would say that from a like from a professional point of view, it's been it's been very positive. Um, and from from like a personal, from a social point of view, I, I, I would say also it's been been a great experience. I've been privileged to interact with a lot of different people from a lot of different countries, not only from southern africa um through work and just life um and i mean there's 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 some people that tease british people you know um there is a, a fair amount of flack for being british but at least we're not american so <laughs> <laughs> great great it's never quite it's never never quite the same of course but i wouldn't I, I, like i don't know if you're baiting a little bit for whether or not there's, you know, people people want to have conversations about British, what it is to be British and what the British have done, and you know, if you like, I don't, or I haven't, I I wouldn't say that's been, it hasn't been a really recurring theme, a really recurring conversation that I've had. Bit of banter. De definitely not, definitely not, in, not in recent years. Maybe maybe early on, maybe early on. But not not recently. Sure, but, sure. But it's been I, interestingly. I know before um, before we were talking about uh, 
the culture shock of being back in the UK after spending a significant amount of time somewhere else. And that's certainly something that I felt the last two times I've been back in the UK after spending the best part of the last 10 years outside of the UK. It's, um, I get more of a culture shock being back in the UK now, partly because it's just not, it's not as I remember it being pre-2010. I know we said 2015, well, I said 2015, but I think 2010s maybe a good, a good marker as well. I agree. Um, all right, so from there, uh, Dave, but what do you sort of see happening in your industry in that part of the world? Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, but over the next five to ten years, how do you, can you see things developing? Obviously, we're living in a bit of what bit of a lot yeah. of conflict at the moment globally, supply chains, Ukraine, etc. But what what sense of things do you have have out there? Yeah. I I feel really positive about aquaculture development specifically. In general, I, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about. There's a lot of innovation in the sector. Um, and obviously this spreads all the way. I think <clears throat> last time we went into a little bit more depth about the different types of, of, of fish farming um, and some of the negatives around like salmon farming and stuff. But um, I think in general, things are things can move in a good direction for that. But then where I am as well, currently working on, you know, smaller integrated systems where farmers are trying to improve their livelihood by maybe 50 to 100% additional income. Um, maybe removing the need to buy, to buy meat twice a week because they can grow it themselves for them and their wider community and then they'll be able to send their kids to school and send their kids to university and you know make incremental significant improvements in their living standards and the living standards of their community that 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 potential is really really there um particularly um from what i've seen in um in, in southern africa and then Southeast Asia as well. Um, obviously, that's a little bit far removed from the Northern Hemisphere. But um, no, generally, I, I feel positive. But there are lots of climate change risks, of course. You know, just dropping that one in there lightly. <laughs> there are lots of climate change risks. Um, I mean, a lot of the farmers in the project, probably 15 to 20% in this last year, because of the cyclone season that ran from January through uh, April. Um, so there were three consecutive cyclones again last year. Probably 15 to 20 percent of farmers either had their ponds buried or flooded, so their fish were lost. Um, and that 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 that's going to continue. So we have to come up with ways of um, you know, different technologies, different innovations that can stop farmers from losing everything once a year. Um, which is possible, but it needs, it needs a lot more coordination in project delivery and you know, government um, making the right action plans. And, but it's, it's exciting to be part of. Great time to be alive. Interesting enough, at least. Yeah. So, uh, Dave, just to finish things off, where can people find your work, see what you're up to, learn a little bit more about so, agriculture? 
Um, as I said last time, probably the easiest place is through LinkedIn. Um, since my part in this project is due to come to an end quite soon, I think I can probably also share lots of links to, to some of the work from the project. Um, but that would be the easiest thing for now, I would say, LinkedIn. But I'm very happy to receive emails as well. And, um, yeah. Fantastic. Dave, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jack. Great to chat.